Hey, everybody, welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. So, how do elite racers like Marcel Hersher, Michaela Schifrin, Bodie Miller, and Darren Rolves approach their equipment and their ski boots in particular? In part three here of our very deep dive on ski boots, Matt Manzer and I discuss how some of the all-time greats feel their gear and how some of them are almost superhumanly attuned to the slightest changes of a binding or a ski boot. And just a heads up, as you listen to this episode, you might want to be asking yourself whether you are more of a Marcel when it comes to your gear or more of a Darren Rolves. You'll see what I mean. Now, we've got some good news and some bad news here. The good news is that this is a really interesting conversation, but the bad news is that while we came in with very good and very real intentions of working our way through the great questions that so many of you have now submitted, you'll even hear me say to Matt that this was our plan for the day, we ended up going longer than we'd anticipated talking about racers and race boots, and so we are going to get to your questions next time. But for today, the topics at hand are racers and race boots. We also talk about forward lean and how to measure forward lean and whether lots of forward lean or less forward lean is better. We also talk about static power straps versus elastic booster straps and what the deal is there. And we even get into a conversation about who is pickier about their equipment, World Cup skiers or World Cup downhill mountain bikers. So yes, once again, we are covering a range of topics, and I think you guys are going to really enjoy this one. And today's episode of Gear 30 is presented by Tribe Alpha. Tribe Alpha is great e-commerce for the great outdoors and can help you improve the performance of your e-commerce site. With more than 25 years of web experience, Tribe Alpha has a long and successful history working with retailers in the outdoor industry and will help you grow your e-commerce business. Furthermore, Gear 30 listeners get a special discount. Just visit tribealpha.com gear to receive a 10% discount off their standard pricing. That's tribealpha.com gear. And now, it's time for the next installment of our very deep dive on ski boots. Well, Matt Manzer, we are back again for part three <laughs> on the currently seemingly never-ending uh, ski boots conversation. Are you ready for another round? Let's do this. Round three, which is round four <laughs> in, in the grand scheme of podcasts. That's right. That's right. Our fourth conversation all time. For people who want to who want to actually get at the beginning, Matt and I we recorded a blister podcast. We'll put that in the show notes to this episode. But if you want to know more about Matt's background and how he got into this whole boot world game, you'll want to go listen to this blister podcast that we recorded since that time where we got Matt's backstory. We're now in part three on these Gear 30 episodes, and we're just going to keep it moving. This time, the format's going to be a little bit different. In part one and part two, Matt laid things out rather systematically for us. Um, here in part three, we're going to bounce a little bit, and frankly, we're going to see how far we get through some very good questions that you all uh, wrote in with. 
here we go uh, down the rabbit hole once again. And Matt, where we're going to start today is ski racers' relationships to their ski boots. You ready to dive into that a little bit? Sure, let's do it. Um, High-level athletes like Marcel or Michaela are on a completely different level when it comes to understanding how a ski boot should behave, what they want out of it, and how it's supposed to feel. And these, these guys and girls are just so attuned to the slightest changes um, in boots, skis, and even bindings. You know, this is this kind of blew my mind uh, when I first joined Atomic was that hearing athletes complain about how the binding feels and how if a binding can be slower or faster. And it kind of took me a bit to wrap my head around what they were referring to. So talk to me, what have you heard in terms of a binding? I'm assuming when you say being faster or slower, I'm assuming you mean more responsive? Yeah, well, yeah, I guess every athlete wants the fastest setup. You know, they want a fast ski, they want a fast binding, and a fast boot. And it's it's pretty easy to think of skis being fast because, you know, everybody has to wax their skis and some are faster, some are slower. We've all kind of felt that. Um, it's interesting to think of having a fast binding. Like what can the binding actually make the athlete faster? You know, and I think it was Bodhi. I heard this story when he was with Atomic. Uh, I could be wrong about this, but I think it's Bodhi. Um, an atomic binding in the past had a toe piece that had four screws mounted, holding it down. And he was complaining the toe piece was moving while skiing. And everybody was like, what? Are you kidding me? Like, it's drilled into your ski. Like, it's not going anywhere. And, you know, the screws aren't loose. Nothing's, like, coming undone. He's, but he's like, I feel the toe piece moving while I ski. And all of our testers who are phenomenally good skiers are like, I I don't feel anything that you're describing like this, you know? And, you know, much like a ski boot, if you want to change a binding, it is no small feat. They're on par, equally as expensive as ski boots sometimes to make a new binding. And so when you want to just redo the toe piece because one athlete claims it's moving, you kind of have to weigh your pros and cons of doing this. And, but lo and behold, um, they made a five screw toe piece (laughs) and other athletes were like, yeah, yeah, I totally feel it now. And everybody started switching to this new five screw, five screw hole pattern toe. And part of this is placebo. Like if, if the main racer is faster on it, everybody else wants to have it too. That's always going to be a thing. Um, but at the same time, if if your top-level athlete says he's faster on X, there's a good chance he or she is right, you know? And I think there's always going to be a little placebo superstition going on there. I mean, racing, competing at this level is, you know, there's such a mental component to this that, if an athlete feels like he or she is going to be faster on a certain setup, chances are they will when their confidence is through the roof, you know? 
um, if they're standing in the starting gate with a seed of doubt creeping in, that's not where you want to be. So part of it, I think, is they do have these special feels going on because we've also tried to sneak things past them and they caught it, which I'll talk about in a second. <laughs> um, but there for sure is a mental component where when someone just feels like they're going to be faster, chances are they will. And the goal is to just always have both of those lined up perfectly. You know, the product is dialed and and then in the athlete's head is super clear at the same time. So yeah, that was my binding tangent from a boot guy. And I'll probably get yelled at by the binding people for getting the name wrong. But I'm 99% sure with Bodie. And then for knowing that these athletes can feel this kind of stuff, um, my first year with Atomic, um, the first boot project I was involved with was the original Redster ski boot that had the uh, black carbon spine on the back of the, the heel of the boot and the, and the cuff. And this was a really different feeling boot compared to the race tech that it was replacing, the model called race tech. And it, it took a, it took a while for the athletes to kind of get their head around what we were trying to do. And this boot came about because a lot of the athletes um, were doing two things. They were carving out material out of the sole of the, the bottom of the boot, like making the toe lug shorter, like Darren was doing this in a couple races, for example. So he wanted to have more flex out of the sole of his boot. But at the same time, they wanted to have the a lot of stiffness in the back of the cuff. On really steep courses, um, none of these athletes are in the back seat, but they they're so attuned to feeling the back of the boot on their calf, they didn't like that some boots were kind of quote unquote softer to the back. They wanted to have more support uh, to help keep them in the front, so to speak. So that's kind of why. The first generation of Redster had a short toe and a longer heel on the sole and this carbon spine technology in it. Um, but it went a little too far and it was really <laughs> stiff <laughs> in yep. the back. Um, and trying to find this balance between the really stiff rear and the softer front of the boot was quite hard for some of our athletes. Um, and they're testing skis, they're testing bindings. Uh, there are multiple disciplines, you know, from slalom to giant slalom to super G to downhill. So trying to find one thing that works across all disciplines at the same time. Um, and so they're experimenting with, of course, hardnesses in the rear spine and in the front part of the boot. And if you remember from our conversation about plastics, the athletes were remarking they could feel a difference between the colors in certain plastics. So not just different plastic families, but the same family, same hardness, but this one is more red than the other one. <laughs> or this one is clear or black or white. And all these things, while at, a, at a, the normal consumer would never feel this kind of stuff, um, but the athletes are saying, you know, this boot feels slower. What's different about it? And we're like, just the color. 
same plastic hardness, same family, yada, yada, yada. It's literally just, this has 3% color versus 5% color, you know? Um, and they, at first they didn't know it was the color, but they're like, what's wrong with this boot? Why don't I like it? What's going on here? And you start to tell them this is what's going on. And they're like, okay. And they start, they start to piece it together. And I remember we were testing a certain boot with Marcel and we didn't tell him that we changed a color um, because the boots were also painted, you know? Um, when we were doing prototype testing, because this boot looked so different compared to the, the race tech it was, it was currently in the stores, we had to paint these boots to look like race tech boots to cover up the, the carbon spine, just so people didn't see something crazy and wonder what was going on, probably for the competition, but also partly for um, just trying to keep status quo on uh, um, the market level. Um, so the boots are painted. You can't, you can't see what color the plastic is. And <laughs> we didn't tell him we made a change in the color and he literally took one run and he was like, there's something wrong with this boot. What's going on with it? And we're like, oh, this one's back to red. And in the testing, he had actually preferred a orange transparent boot. That was one of the colors he was testing well with and liked how it felt. And so we had painted the boot. He couldn't tell what it looked like. Um, and, but he, he could feel it. He totally stopped and wanted his other boot back kind of thing. <laughs> And you, you can do this with colors, you can do it with material hardnesses, you can do it with rebounds. Um, the athletes will typically feel it unless they're testing a binding and a ski. Like that's like the worst, the worst combination is to be on a new boot, a new binding and a new ski. We have no idea what's going on. You know, that, that doesn't happen often. You know, we wanna make sure we're just doing a ski test or a binding test or a boot test. Um, just because, as you know, the more variables you have going on, it's just, you can't tell what you're feeling sometimes. So yeah, the athletes are just super tuned in to this kind of stuff. And some of the things we offer commercially. So if you were to go into a atomic race dealer this fall, you can get the normal Redster World Cup boot with what we call the regular cuff, but you can also order the speed cuff. And what the speed cuff is, is a, a cuff that mounts at the same hinge points, obviously, if it's on Lego-like. And this cuff has a metal power control in the back of it. So the normal Redster cuff uh, the cuff is bolted to the lower shell with two screws in the plastic. There's no metal piece in the back. And the speed cuff has a metal piece. And the top of the cuff is more tulip shaped and more round. So it's, it's kind of like, it's, it's almost like a ladies cuff, like what we do to our women's specific cuffs in the commercial range. These cuffs are more fluted, meaning they're more open, like a tulip up top. Um, and a little bit rounder profile. 
And the speed cuff is built this way. As you can imagine, if you're in a super speed tuck going 100 miles an hour, the last thing you want is to have a crazy, twitchy, responsive boot. So the speed cuff is a little bit more easy skiing, if you can call a race boot easy skiing. Um, the athletes would, you know. Um, but it also has a little bit more forward lean to it. So despite this more tuliping, it's got a little bit more forward lean and some of the athletes, even if they're not in a speed event, they just like how the cuff feels. So we originally developed this cuff with the feedback from the, the Super G and downhill athletes, but it turns out some of our GS athletes like it too. And when you watch them ski, and when we do like, you know, video analysis of them doing the same run on repeat, and you can totally tell what cuff they're in just by watching them ski. And I'm not a super dialed in race coach by any stretch of the imagination, but when you watch, you watch them ski and you're like, oh, they look a little back seat or they just can't hold the line the right way. And the next run, they just pin it like perfectly. And you're like, what was different on the setup this time? And like, well, we just changed cuffs, you know, and a cuff change, you know, to the, to an athlete is a huge change. You know, you've got just a completely different top half of the boot going on. We're not even talking about something very particular, like color or material hardness or rebound speed or something. Um, it's a, it's a big change. Um, so you should see something in their skiing when you change cuffs, but this had such a good, um, response and testing that we wanted to offer it commercially as well kind of thing. So this is, this kind of thing is, is available for the athletes or anybody who just wants to have a, a, a more, a less direct cuff with a slightly bit more forward lean. Um, but small thing in the grand scheme for commercial skiers, huge change for racers. And even though we call it the speed cuff, it's one of those things like you could use it. I don't think, I don't think anybody's using it for slalom yet, um, but it's definitely used in GS. Talk a little bit about at a regular <laughs> World Cup event, how many pairs of ski boots would say a Marcel or a Michaela be traveling with? Good question. Um, you know, I don't know how many they travel with. Um, it's a person like Marcel has about 30 pairs of boots in general, maybe a little more, maybe a little less, depending on the time of the year. Um, so if any boot fitters are listening, can you imagine making every boot fit exactly the same? You know, like all the grinding that has to be replicated perfectly all that stuff, um, challenge number one. Um, but he has about, he has this many pairs of boots because of, you know, all the disciplines that he's gonna be in. Um, some courses, it's just, well, some temperatures are gonna be colder, some are warmer. So some have, it's the same boot, but a different injection material. Um, sometimes he's testing something new for us, completely new. 
Um, he's got the most by far. <laughs> and compared to somebody, uh, even though Darren's retired, um, Darren Rawls is famous for running a, one pair of boots until it's just dead. And then asking for a yep. second, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, so there, there's different personalities for sure. Um, on the world cup, um, somebody like Marcel, who is just so incredibly dominant, who wants to maintain that level of dominance has just a lot in his arsenal to make sure he has everything available. Um, some boots are abducted more. Some boots are, I think, deducted is the word. Um, I have to look it up. I've been saying it in German for too long. Um, but like toes in. And that's not done in the mold. That's done with the boot fitters, which is they're kind of wizards in their own right here um, to do this kind of stuff, figure this stuff out for him. Those things don't happen often, but they're they're there, you know, and it kind of depends on what he's feeling confident with, what he's been testing with. Um, sometimes he loves this boot from two years ago that he still wants to keep using. Um, or there's this boot he knows is a better match with this ski, you know, that he's got. Um, so there's all these puzzle pieces that have to go together um, from what discipline he's going to be in to the temperature, to the snow conditions. Is it more man-made snow or is it natural snow? how injected is it you know um like is it bulletproof ice which a lot of the courses they want to get have that but in the springtime it's much harder to have that kind of stuff some had to have more master badge like that coloring to them some have less so there's just an absurd amount of possibilities um that could happen and he tends to have them all i think um and he knows exactly the right setup his success rates high enough where he's he's picked usually the right stuff other athletes are I, I wouldn't say equally as demanding he definitely is an extreme case um but more and more athletes are becoming more demanding um with good reason because the changes are real you know these these small things affect how a boot feels and they want to have the perfect setup it's interesting. I was um I was watching the World Cup DH you know mountain bike races in Val d'Isle and my co-host on Bikes and Big Ideas it it was Claudio Calori. It was really interesting. He kept coming back. He said it multiple times during the broadcast. He was talking about how there were certain advantages that say certain specialized riders probably had in this race because the specialized teams were just so good at dialing the bike for the rider and the course exactly the right way. And it's funny, I think hearing you describe this whole, this specificity, on the one hand, I think talking about bikes and bike suspension and bike setup, I think maybe that would be something where all of us would be more obviously or readily be like, oh yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I see how that's the case. It's really interesting when you're bringing it into the level, you know, in the specificity of like choosing between ski boots that are already extremely similar, but it's the same kind of thing. Totally. I mean, like 
Yeah, I'm a, a complete mountain bike nerd at the same time. And I I used to race downhill back in the day, and now I, I don't race anymore, but I, I still, that's my main bike is my downhill bike. And I follow the World Cup just the same. And when you watch, especially like the Fox series, we're going to plug uh, Fox Dialed here. If you guys really want to see mountain bikers nerd out on suspension, this is hilarious, like what they go through. You know, like they're, they're totally freaking out about clicking their rebound one less or one more, or the low speed rebound versus the high speed rebound versus the high speed compression versus the low speed compression. And they, they literally freak out over this stuff, you know? And, you know, when I, when I mess with my Fox 40, I'm like, yeah, let's do one more click. And it's like, I, I can't feel that stuff. You know, if I keep doing one more, eventually I feel it, sure. But, you know, when I'm in between settings, I could be in between three or four settings. And for me, the bike feels mint, you know. But for these guys and girls, you know, being three clicks off is a absolute nightmare. You know, the bike just won't do its thing at this level for them. And you see that completely come over um, to the ski world too. You know, there's 100% one-to-one parallel between the the World Cup nerdery um, in downhill mountain biking and downhill ski racing for sure. I mean, it's for sure, I think it's probably more nerdy on the ski side, um, just at least because I know that a little bit deeper than I do on the bike side. You think it's nerdier on the ski side than the bike side? Oh, yeah, <laughs> for sure. You want to talk about ski tuning and waxing? And all that stuff, that's a whole nother rabbit hole that goes deeper than the boot stuff. Fair <laughs> point, yeah. And and for sure that the, the ski racers use the stopwatch, the same for mountain bikers. You know, I don't know if you saw it in like some of the um just like the behind the scenes stuff from Valdesol or previous races, you know, the the specialized athletes and a lot of the French riders in general, um, they'll set up individual timing sections on course during practice runs but like so like Loic Bruni um, and the specialized guys will set up in this they're trying to figure out what's the fast line through this section where there's multiple line options and they'll put up like an individual like a mini timed area and they'll just they'll literally just go they'll do one line record the time go back up record the different line and just see what was faster. In addition to having all the data acquisition stuff, you know, on their suspension, telling them how to set the, the compressions and rebounds of front and rear, you know? Um, so there, there's for sure a huge rabbit hole to go down in, in the bike world that of course, I know just like the tip of the iceberg, just from being a nerdy fan. Um, so there, there could be way more that I just don't get but I would, I would take, I would gander that, um, you know, the ski world, you know, because they're really, you know, there are multiple line options, of course, but not as much as there are on like a downhill mountain bike track. They're both incredibly nerdy and in their own way, of course. Here's a real tangent. Omri and Loic are just, uh, the, not, not this last race in Val de Sol, but the previous I just, I'm not over it yet. The, their two runs and 
I thought Loic had it. I thought Loic was like I, his his. I thought he won. I could not have been more impressed with his run, which is to say, I some I know he didn't win, but that was the best run of the day, like. Omri, it was nuts. Omri was riding, as he said, right? He said, he freely admitted after the race, like, I was so on the edge. I was so at my limit. I can't ever do that again. Like, that was crazy. And the thing that is insane about Loic's run was that dude looked totally in control. That non-winning run was one of the best runs I've ever seen in my life. Like Loic style and Minar style, they're just always composed. And when you watch them, they're just like, they don't, they don't look that fast. And then all of a sudden, Loic, at the time, he won or he, he beat the next rider by, it was like two and a half seconds when everybody else is within fractions of one second. You know, to put two and a half seconds into the field when second place to 10th place is separated by half a second to an eighth of a second is mental. And then Omri comes down and beats Loic by like two and a half seconds. Is just mind boggling. And he and and like Omri looked ragged. Like you're, there were just times you're you're just you're just like holy shit. If he's slipped, game over, you know? Like there's there's no walking out of those woods. I mean you're going that fast. And you watch Loic and of course the dudes, you know, having, uh, you know, I live like 40 minutes away from Leo gang. So I get to go to the, the world cup there. And, you know, you stand on the side of the track, like a meter from the athletes and the ground is literally shaking when they go by. It is mental. And this thing happens when Loic goes, like Loic just looks so smooth, but it's total freight train coming by you you know you are overstating it to me and that run it, it was an unbelievable display of both to me power and precision whereas like Omri's was just sheer terrifying power <laughs> and so I'm 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 not ready quite to go with you to the part where like Loic looks slow to me, <laughs> but um I I, I, I and that's not what I mean. I don't mean slow, but because like I'm trying to say like he, like when they go by like the ground is literally shaking like they're going so fast, but I think that's kind of like what everybody comments about like with Loic's bike, it just looks so much more composed. It is incredible, you know, and in in that way it looks slow. I gotcha. Like it's he's gone in a blink of an eye, you know. But you you watch you know especially the guy like like Blinky, Sam Blinkensop, who barely ever cracks the top twenty now. He looks so fast, like every he's scrubbing everything, he's pedaling in the air. You're like this guy, he's gonna win by the ten seconds, and he's way off the pack, you know, off the front. I mean, and so there's guys that look fast that doesn't really translate to being fast. And there's guys that are fast that don't necessarily look it. And then there's guys like Omri that just are smoking everybody and they look incredibly mentally fast. And so they're, they're just, they're so finely calibrated. Just, just like how dialed in and sensitive the mountain bike athletes are, you for sure see it on the ski, skier side too. And 
you know, making a little change that you and I might feel, um, someone like Michaela or Marcel is just going to wonder how we messed up their boot. You know, they're like, what'd you do here? They're just on another level. By the way, uh, Harkening back to some things you were saying at Marcel, I think I have now come across like the one thing that Marcel and I have in common is that I probably have about 30 <laughs> pairs of ski boots as well. <laughs> That's it. That's probably That's true. That's all I got. I got nothing yeah. else, but uh, yeah, when I, you know, next time I see Marcel, I can be like, so how are your 30 pairs of ski boots doing? You know, <laughs> and uh, I imagine you guys have equal amounts of skis and boots. I might about. actually be beating them on the ski side. I mean, of course, the... That's probably like, true. Yeah, I either own zero pairs of skis or many, depending on how you look at it. It's, <laughs> yeah. Um, define yeah, own. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, um, I might actually have them on that one uh, as I'm looking around our Blister HQ here. So you've given some a great binding anecdote, which we're uh, attributing to Bodie, maybe, you know, rightly or wrongly. Uh You've talked about Marcel. I need to hear a little bit about Michaela's relationship with uh, these products you guys are putting on her feet. Um, she's relative, not easy, but she's becoming more demanding um, with good reason. You know, she's just killing it. You know, she's got some records now that, you know, none of the guys have. You know, she's, she's, won, she's won a World Cup in every discipline from downhill to slalom. Which crazy is nuts you know in this day and age like you can think in 1930 maybe they, they could do that because that's that's all they had back then but now it's it's usually such a specialized sport that to win in a a technical and a speed event let's just call it that first is mind-blowing but to win all in all four is just how do you do that like it's that's just crazy so in that sense, none of the guys are touching her, which is super cool. You know, I think that's just mega rad. Um, and she's, because she's in all these disciplines, you know, at, at the at the pointy end of the stick, um, she's got incredibly sensitive needs to what the gear should be like. So um, just because of that, she's gonna have more options at her disposal now than she did three or four years ago. Um, and they're getting more specific because she, you know, as she's getting more mature, she's realizing how things feel, how they operate, how they time out. And, you know, to her credit, she, she's picky, but in a good way. And when you, when you watch the athletes in the different disciplines, if you pay attention, you can see these things that I'm talking about with the boot selection, you know, how, especially if you look at the regular cuff on our boots versus the speed cuff, it has the, the metal piece in the back. So it's a very obvious, you know, thing to look for. You can actually see it in the boots and, and see there's a couple of different things going on depending on what event they're in. And sometimes, especially like slalom, um, they change from first run to second run. Not many athletes do that, but some will. Um, 
depending how the course changes or temperature changes from when the first run to the second run was. Um, some athletes refuse to change. They want to have one thing they know how it feels and just adapt their skiing to the course. Um, and then some are like, nope, I need to have this boot for the second run. And yeah, you, you see the athletes go up and they, they do course walks and stuff like, like the mountain bikers, you know, in between runs. But they're going out, they're looking at the lines, they're looking at the snow conditions from turn to turn. Where's the course deteriorating? Um, where is it still good? Um, and they're adjusting their skis and boots accordingly, for sure. So can you generalize a little bit about this? So let's say Marcel or Michaela, they've got their first run of the day and the course is firmer um, than it's going to be, you know, as temps warm up during the day. So let's assume a, firm, a firmer course, probably a smoother course on the first lap and then a softer softer and more beat up course on the second. So as a generalization, I don't assume all the athletes are like, oh, well, this one wants to go opposite of what the other, you know, high level skier would be doing. Have you found that there are some clear generalizations here? Mm -hmm, totally. Um, the ideal goal from every racer is to make their run, no matter, no matter their start bib, for example, um, they want the course to feel like they're the first one going down. That's the ideal situation, right? Um, having a choppier, more beat up course, it's just harder to hit the right lines the way they want. So they, they, they're looking for the gear to kind of erase those irregularities in the course. And they're looking a lot of the times to the boot to do that. And that's kind of why we developed um, this new cuff that I talked about. Having that more rounder profile makes the boot a little less direct and a little less bouncy. So if you have a super direct feeling boot and the course is all rutted up, any bump that gets transmitted from the, the snow to the ski to the bind of the boot goes to the athlete. And if things are bumpier and choppier, it's just harder to stay on that line that they want to hit. So they're looking for the boot to provide a lot of damping that the ski or the binding can't provide. And so athletes would change to get more damping out of their setup. This is still an incredibly stiff boot that most people would think was, you know, made of steel. You know, um, especially in slalom. Slalom athletes have typically the stiffest boots. And generally speaking, the downhill athletes have kind of the softer boots. Again, there are still super stiff race boots, but that's kind of a general thing you can think about. And between run and one and run two, it's often run two, especially if you're Marcel and you're you're starting last because you've just smoked the, the field. Um, you have the absolute worst course conditions going down, guaranteed. So there's a really high priority on having a powerful boot, having a quick boot, and having a boot that provides the right amount of shock absorption 
so Marcel can hit those lines the way he wants to, or Michaela can hit the lines the way she wants to. So it doesn't always happen. The, the athletes switch between run one and run two, um, but it, it it's common, I would say. With Marcel, it's common. With other athletes, it's not common. Kind of depends. Um, what I've learned in, in World Cup racing is there's never an, an absolute that they stick to. Things change super quickly. So we think we have a boot dialed in and the plastic is on the money and the athlete loves it for two weeks and then a month later doesn't work anymore. You're like, well, why doesn't it work anymore? And it's just, it, it can be hard to explain sometimes, um, but if things, you know, in between races, when athletes are practicing and testing this stuff out, if things are just testing slower, they're moving on to the, to find the next fastest thing. So sometimes it's in their head. Sometimes it is the boot. Um, sometimes they just use boots or skis for too long. And they're just, they're lacking some of the pop or rebound that they used to have. And they need something new. Um, it doesn't happen quickly, but it happens eventually for sure. Yeah. And so just to bring back sort of some proper context here, we're talking about athletes being particular about their ski boots, but this is not the kind of, you know, day in, day out, or kind of hour by hour, minute by minute interrogation of tunes and wax, that stuff is going to be like way more ahead, you know, because I guess I was going to ask you if, if you happen to know whether say Marcel or Michaela, where they tend to get the most finicky and specific, is it with respect to edge angles? Is it with respect to type of wax? I'd be surprised if you told me they actually, it's far more about ski boots because they just give the edge angles and wax issues to, you know, their techs. But what do you know about that? Uh, unfortunately, not nearly as much compared to the boot side. Um, of course, there's a whole amount of wizardry and science mixed in with the waxing and stuff like that. Um, you know, different grinds for different applications or different snow conditions, I mean, um, it's, a, it's, it's a real thing for sure. And even we can feel different grinds on skis, you know. Um, the, the average listener here could go into their shop, have a fresh tune in January when it's usually pretty cold. Ski feels awesome. And then you're still skiing on the same tune come April when this, the, the snow is super wet and you're getting a lot of suction between the, the wet snow and the base. If you were to go in and get a, what's called like a spring grind, like a deeper, more spaced out grind on the base of your, of your ski, you'd be like, oh my God, the problem's totally solved. And if you use that same grind in the winter, you're like, what the hell, I can't, it feels like I'm on sandpaper here. Um, so you can really feel the differences in tunes very easily and this is where I would have to for sure it happens I just don't hear about it as much obviously I, I hear more of the 
the, the boot specific feedback. And I'd like to think for sure they sweat more over the boot, of course, because boots are the most important thing, right? Um, <laughs> but I'm sure, I'm of course, the ski guys get earfuls on tunes and bass materials and edge angles and all sorts of stuff, for sure. Which now I want to go in, I want to go ask the guys tomorrow. But this, uh, this will be uh, <laughs> keeping me awake at night, I think, tonight. Right, you have to report <laughs> back. Um, what do you think would be something surprising to many of us um, that we haven't touched on yet? I would say, um, I think whenever I talk to people about the question of forward lean, it surprises everybody how much forward lean the racers use. And if, you, if you're unaware of this topic, it's, it's this is something in like the general ski boot world that is a kind of like a buzz point, like a talking point is to talk about forward lean. And there's this a definite trend uh, for better or for worse, where brands are talking about having a more upright quote unquote neutral stance to a ski boot. And this is usually in, in the vicinity of like, 12 or 13 degrees, would you say, is what a lot of brands kind of talk about with their neutral stance-ish? I, I would have said 11 to 12, yeah. Yeah, and so it it's always surprises people when they, they see the most, if you, if you think of racing as like the highest performance level of skiing, quote unquote, when it comes to at least just balls out speed and precision, um, how much forward lean they have kind of, surprises a lot of boot fitters who tend to kind of promote a, a more upright stance um, or just skiers in general. Um, and I would say a lot of athletes, like if I, if we keep going back to Marcel here, um, he's pushing almost 20 degrees of forward lean, you know, and for sure there's an element of skiing style that plays into this and biomechanics is a huge thing that, that allows him to do that. Not many people can have that much forward lean with their, with their ankle and Achilles and setup, um, with their ankle flexibility. I mean, their dorsiflexion. Um, and I, I, I tend to see it a lot now with our athletes from the more analyzing we do with our boots, you know, and this also depends how brands measure this. This is kind of a, it's, there's not a consistent way to measure forward lean, which may surprise people. Um, a brand might say their boots 12 degrees, but if you measure it a different way, it might be 15, you know? Um, we at Atomic, we measure forward lean off the back spine of the boot. They're, they're like a straight line from like a table up the back of the cuff kind of thing. Even this is not 100% accurate because there is not a straight line up the inside of the back of the boot. There's a curve at the heel um, that goes forward, then it kind of comes back a little bit towards the calf. So there's no straight line almost anywhere <laughs> on a ski boot. Um, but this, this is generally the, the way we measure our boots and our Redster boots come out of the box at 16 degrees when measured this way. And they have the ability to be easily adjusted to 18 um, 
with a certain flip chip in the back of the boot. And then you can add liner spoilers, so a Velcro spoiler or a cuff spoiler that bolts to the inside of the cuff to further push the knee forward. And you know, again, depending on the event, depending on how steep the terrain is, um, usually the steeper it gets, the more forward lean the athletes request, just because that forward lean helps keep them forward. You know, even um, even skiers like like Sage or or Chris Benchetler, like they'll ski their Hawks Ultra Extended in the 17 degree setting. You know. They, they want more support when things get steep, when things get technical, and it helps keep them in the, on the balls of their feet a little bit easier. Now, not everybody can do this. If you've got a limited <laughs> dorsiflexion or do- limited range of motion, setting the boot up with more forward lean than your ankle allows is incredibly detrimental to your balance and comfort. So this is also why I think there's not one forward lean that is just perfect for everybody and why I think almost all of our boots, especially at the high end, um, offer at least two, often three settings that you can easily put the boot in between 13, 15, or 17 degrees before you start adding spoilers to the liner. Um, But yeah, almost everybody on World Cup, even the brands that love to push a more upright marketing talking point, those athletes are also typically in, you know, more than 17 degrees of forward lean quite often. It's pretty interesting too. Like I was, as you were started this and as you were talking, I was like, okay, but what about mogul skiers? And then it was like, well, okay, but here's the thing. Skiing moguls inbounds in any ski resort, basically anywhere is so different than skiing an actual like competition moguls course. Like, like I was thinking, I'm sitting here thinking like, yeah, when I'm skiing like screwed up steep off piste moguls, you know, here in Crested Butte or, you know, in Telluride or in Taos or wherever. I I doubt you're skiing an actual mogul ski when you do that too. (laughs) No, definitely not skiing a mogul ski when I do that. And it's like, yeah, I'm not interested in 17 degrees of forward lean, but if you put me on an actual competition moguls course, I'd happily ski a boot with a ton of forward lean. So in, in some ways it's like, okay, so... I haven't exactly asked you this question, but I'm guessing that even for competition mogul skiers, as a rule, they're probably cool with still running a lot of forward lean. I'd have to guess, to be honest. I haven't really talked to a competition mogul skier in a long time. Um, I would always go back to the starting point of what does your ankle allow? So if there's a general trend in World Cup mogul skiing to have 18 degrees of forward lean, hypothetically, let's just say that, but your ankle only allows you to get to 14, you can't, you can't go more than 14. Like you'll just, your heel will lift and your foot will move inside your boot. Like it just, it won't help you to have more than what you're allowed to have. So that's always gonna be the starting point for everybody. 
is always make sure your boot has the forward lane that your body allows for. And if you're hyper flexible, like me, I could have like 22 degrees of forward lean and, and do it. I wouldn't like it, but I could do it because my I'm really at a lot of dorsiflexion. Uh, I'm not limited by my my ankles mobility in terms of setting up my boot. How I would set my boot up would just be more a personal preference. Do I like more forward lean than less? Typically, I do. I just I grew up on a lot of race boots that have just had a ton of forward lean, and when I when I started experimenting with less forward lean like 10 years ago when this became like more of a a thing in the boot world i just i couldn't believe that i didn't like it i wanted to like it <laughs> but i was i was i was really surprised that i just i couldn't ski the way i like to ski in like a 13 degree setup or or less it just didn't work for my personal preference and how i'd been skiing for the last 30 years um, so I, I have my boots typically set up with 17 degrees, um, in the boot itself. And cause I've got little skinny chicken legs, I've got a big Velcro spoiler on the back of the liner as well. Um, and I, and I ski that from off piste on piste bumps, trees, everything. Um, I've experimented with different spoilers over the last couple years. Like we've got... I had some softer ones made that are like not, not gel, but they're softer than hard plastic um, to take up the space, but to have a little bit of give to them. And that's kind of been pretty comfortable, to be honest. Um, but it, it's all about different strokes for different folks. Like I, I, I really can't tell you to say 15 degrees is gonna be awesome all the time for you without assessing someone in the ankle first. What I've found in you know testing all of these different boots right over the years is that really for me I think um, and I don't know if this is kind of weird or not but I'd say it really depends on the terrain I'm in and like if we're just ripping groomers all day I've never been in a boot where it's like this boot has too much forward lean. But I do. I just spend a lot of time skiing really weird, steep moguls, <laughs> and it's like in, you know, in in those because it's like that's how I'm either getting into the line I want to go ski, or that's what I'm. That's kind of the run out of whatever cool thing I just got to ski, and so the more I'm in that kind of just a mess, right? That is where I do tend to appreciate a more upright boot because I'm definitely going to get knocked back. And so like on a groomer, right? Or if, if you're racing on ice back when you were talking about, yeah, racers on courses, they want more forward lean because they want to stay there. And it's like, that's cool, but they're not skiing totally fucked up moguls, like big off piece fucked up moguls. And sure, a more precise skier than me could be in a boot, a strong, powerful boot with a lot of forward lean, and they'd probably be doing just fine. But it's like I feel like I'm like getting just I'm in a I'm in a bar fight, <laughs> is what it kind of feels like. And it's like I really there appreciate I think a more upright boot where when you hit that bump where it's like super deep trough or I'm making some super weird turn and I'm getting more on my heels, 
that's when it doesn't feel great to me to be, you know, in a, in a super strong boot with a ton of forward lean that just makes it, it, it seems like it just makes it really hard to recover once you get sort of to a point of no return. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think, you know, I kind of joked about your ski selection, uh, a few minutes ago, but skis do have a, a big influence on what boot feels good sometimes too. You know, when, when you've got like a 190 centimeter wood core, two sheets of metal, flat tail ski, and you're trying to rip bumps, for sure that's going to suck with a certain boot, you know. Um, so ski choice does, you know, it's just a factor in the puzzle of making the whole setup work, I think. Um, which is why I also think boots that have adjustability in the forward lean um, can help a lot of people out because some days you might want to crank the forward lean more forward. Um, if you are, it hasn't snowed in two weeks and you're just ripping bulletproof groomers all day. Um, or you're on a ski that just necessitates a little bit less forward lean because you want to just chill for a little bit. <laughs> it's, it's a super personal, um, question to answer, but it's interesting when you look at what's happening on the world cup there isn't this huge bandwidth of the forward lane settings that the racers are using. Like it's, it's all pretty aggressive stuff. Yeah. And, and but again, and I'm, <laughs> I, that makes sense to me, which is still a little bit unfair to say, because, you know, these men and women are, you know, especially if we're thinking about DH courses, first of all, you know, halfway through the day, if not sooner, these courses are often a mess and they are absolutely and utterly sending it at 70, 80 miles an hour. And they are getting knocked backseat all the time. And they're landing backseat all the time. So I've kind of painted this picture a little bit of like, oh, yeah, well, if I'm just skiing these nice groomers like those, you know, those World Cup DHers who have it so easy, you know, it's like, yeah, that's not fair or even remotely true, um, other than maybe in the kind of super steep, weird mogul sort of terrain I'm talking about, these guys aren't getting thrown hard backseat all the time. I mean, they're strong enough, their technique is good enough that the hard backseat landing that they've got to recover from, that's not like happening, I think, you know, multiple times a split second, actually. Yeah. And it's, it's crazy to watch, especially in slalom, you know, like, some of these courses are just so insane. Like getting from one turn to the next, I'd have zero prayer of making it, <laughs> yeah. you know? And the athletes, you can just see them load the ski up. And if you watch it in slow-mo, you're like, they look from like the hip down, you think they'd be totally backseat doing the backseat Jesus setup. But they, it, it's this weird, like you said, a fraction of a second where they are backseat, but the gear will get them to the next turn in the right way. And they're looking for that help for sure. Before we go, I want to bring up this question of kind of the stock power straps that come on most ski boots um, versus these aftermarket booster straps that people know about. Some people trade out their stock power straps for. And basically, I think we can look at this broadly speaking as 
kind of static power straps that come stock on most ski boots versus these elastic booster straps. Uh, I imagine you have thoughts on this. Yeah, this is a typical, usually a very easy upgrade people tend to make on their boots is switching out power straps. Um, most of the time boots come with like a Velcro power strap. Um, these are, they're good, but they're kind of basic and they're, they are the cheaper versions to make. So they, they tend to be on what most ski boots have. Um, and then there's stuff like a booster strap, which is two things. Instead of being Velcro, it has like this camming mechanism, like a little, like a tie down strap would have um, on it. So instead of Velcroing together, you put this like tail end through a metal buckle, like a metal cam, and you can really cinch it down to tighten up the top of the boot. And what Booster has, the, the brand Booster, is an elastic um, portion to the strap that allows for some give to happen. Um, there's tons of different opinions on is this good or not good or just is up to feel. Many people have their opinions on it. Um, I'm always of the opinion, if you like it, stick with it. You know, <laughs> it's, you're here to enjoy skiing. So if you, if you like the way a certain thing feels, go nuts. Um, I would generally say I prefer cam straps over Velcro straps any day of the week. For me, I can just get the top of the boot tighter and I can also tighten it with the pant leg down still. I don't have to lift up my pant leg, undo the Velcro, retighten, and then put my pant leg down. I can just reach down, grab the tail end of it and pull it tighter. Boom, done. So I like that for its simplicity. Um, I also like cam straps, at least taller, like, like a wider cam strap. Um, you can actually measure these straps in terms of their height. Like we, we have on guys boots, 40 millimeter straps and 50 millimeter straps. And generally the taller the strap is, it allows you to have a portion of the strap on the top of the cuff and a portion of the strap against the tongue of the liner. So you can kind of tighten both tightly and closely to your shin. And that's what I think is the ultimately the most important aspect of a power strap is to make sure there's no gap between your shin and the tongue of the boot. I think that's, that's the most crucial thing you can take away from this. Um, if you have a gap there, it just means you're gonna have more friction, more, I mean, more movement, which leads to more friction, which is often characterized as shin bang. When your shins just get raw, you, it just hurts to flex forward because there's this pain on your shins. A lot of that's caused by excess movement between your shin and the tongue of the liner. So anything you can do to minimize that is ideal. And one of the ways to minimize that is through a power strap. And the camming versions, in my opinion, just do a better job. You can just get them really tight. Um, they're usually quite thin in the front. You don't have multiple layers of Velcro and, and different webbings going on. So this allows the, the thin 
thin portion of the strap to just kind of sit nice and cleanly against the cuff and the tongue of the liner. And that's what I, I would say all these camming straps do is, is it try to achieve that. Every brand kind of has their take on the shape and the height and Booster tends to go a different route and have some elasticity built into it. So it has a bit more give. Um, this could be a cool thing. You might like it. You might not like it. Um, it's only a couple of our racers actually use it. Um, it used to be way more popular, but I think more of our racers are using um, what we call a dual strap. So we have a, a strap on our Redster boots that is a, it's 55 millimeters high, but it's kind of split in the middle horizontally. And there's a top portion that sits directly against the tongue of the liner and a bottom portion that sits evenly on the cuff. So you can get both of these elements um, really tight and really snug and just have as minimal gap as possible going on there. So kind of like forward lane, if you, if you like one versus the other, awesome. Um, I would say most of our athletes, they're free to run whatever power strap they want. And you'll see some on booster straps, you'll see some on our dual strap. Um, I guess you'll see most on our dual strap because it's, it's unique in that way that you, you really have two parts to the front of the strap that you can really dial in the fit to the tongue and to the cuff of the boot in a really clean way. So I would just say Velcro straps are nice. Cam straps are better. Try to find a cam strap that works for your leg shape and the feel you can get out of it. And uh, you'll have a, a nice upgrade to your boot typically. So, you know, you have correctly said this is sort of a personal preference thing. Talk a little bit about for somebody who's like, well, I've never tried a booster or I've been skiing in boosters so long, I don't even remember what a kind of static strap feels like. How would you characterize both? Mm -hmm. um, a static strap is, it's a good word you've got there. Like it's, it's a little bit more static. Um, it's not giving as much. It for sure does give a little, but it's much more direct. So if you like having a very responsive boot, that kind of off the top few degrees of movement, it makes it really precise. And boosters tend to have a bit more give to them because they're elastic. So there's a little bit more of a, um, you know, just more give off the top. And because it's elastic, it kind of has a bit more rebound sometimes too. Um, so it just kind of depends what you're after. You know, I, I've been on static straps for just so long now that I just like how they feel. And I, I tend not to like the current crop of booster straps because they're a little, they're kind of small. They don't really fit over the cuff and the tongue at the same time, you kind of have to pick one or the other, you know? Um, so for me, it's kind of like a booster. You kind of have to decide, do you want it on the cuff? Do you want it on the liner tongue? Whereas the straps we have, you know, fit nicely over both. And I've just been super happy with how it feels, to be honest. Um, 
But yeah, like we said, if you're loving how one feels versus the other, there you go. I don't think there's going to be one simple answer for it all, but there's some, there's tons of great options and that's what's cool. I think. Yeah. You sit here working hard with your team. You're making these lovely products and then they go out into the world and then, you know, all of us dumb users and skiers do whatever the hell we do, you know, with these products you guys have made. I'm curious from your point of view, two part question. One, what is the most common or the, the most common mistake you think people are making with respect to the booster strap component of their boot? Second question, if this doesn't answer the first, is it possible to over tighten a booster strap, i.e., should people always be wrenching those things as tight as possible? Or do you guys, the designers, think, no, these are intended to be like modulated? Well, you can get booster straps in different stiffnesses of elastic, like some are harder and some are softer. And I think there's this, in general, in the ski industry, you, you people always have to be on the stiffest, most gnarly thing, right? Skis have to be like crazy stiff. Boots have to be 130 plus if you're a good skier. Um, so I think people tend to get overbooted, over skis, and they might be on a booster strap that's just too burly for them. Maybe could be a thing. Um, to the point where it's, it, it's not elastic for them anymore. You know, like it's so stiff that it's just not giving the way it should. Um, I don't think it's a huge problem, but I would imagine that would, would be the problem. Um, or like where to put it. I think no matter what power strap you've got, the first thing is to make sure it's sitting in a way that it, it holds the tongue close to your shin. I think that's the most crucial thing. So if your power strap isn't doing that, that's a big no-no. So make sure your power strap, no matter what it is, a Velcro strap or a cam strap or a booster strap, make sure it's holding the cuff and the liner, especially tight to your shin. I think the second part of your question is, can you overdo it? The answer is totally yes. Um, especially with these cam straps, they can get so tight that if you really wrench on it, you're going to lose some blood flow to your toes. So that tends to be pretty obvious. Like within like half a run, you'll realize that you kind of went a little too aggro on it. <laughs> You need to kind of back it off a little. Um, so that one's, that tends to be pretty obvious. Um, but I would just circle back to say, make sure the power strap is doing its job of holding the liner tongue snugly to your shin. Like if you know if it's too loose because there's just too much play in the top of the boot, um, you can always force a gap to happen. If you lean backwards, you could get a finger between your shin and the tongue, of course. But if, you, if you're if you in like an athletic skiing position and you're going to go downhill, you wanna have a snug, I think a snug secure fit is the best way to describe it, like a firm handshake. If, you're, if you tighten it down so tight that you're gonna lose blood flow, it just means you're gonna lose feeling and responsiveness to the boot, so. Um, don't go too crazy, 
but I would say the proper amount is going to be on the snugger side. The, the proper amount is going to more resemble the extreme of too tight. Just don't go too tight. <laughs> go tight, just not too tight. Exactly. Well, hey, uh, we've done it again. <laughs> we got through three questions. We got right? through three. That's good because I literally came in and I think we had about 20 or so. <laughs> so at this rate, it's like George R. R. Martin's got nothing on us. Yeah. Yeah. This is going to be a pretty uh... long book. <laughs> That's right. A lot fewer dragons, though. Uh, Which is a bummer. But... It is a bummer. It is a bummer. By the time we're done with this series, we'll prob you'll probably have guys have put out like five new ski boots. So maybe <laughs> one of them can be called the dragon and nice. you know, maybe even have a cool dragon on it. Um, I think Technica might have some issue with that. <laughs> I forget how long trademark rights apply for and stuff like that, but it's something you never want to get close to. So it sucks to name ski boots. Or any product for that matter. It's a I, nightmare. <laughs> um, this like I feel like I should be invited on the naming council. Like, you know, not that not that my opinion goes, but if there's like a round table and there's thirteen seats, I feel like I should ha I should just be one among, you know, thirteen or fourteen opinions. Is there any way I can apply for this job? Just come over and we'll <laughs> We'll sit down and talk about it with marketing, and you'll see how quickly, how much of a disaster this is. Hit of despair it becomes. Okay. Yeah. Like naming naming boots or any product is in the same the same shitstorm as trying to find the right color that works for everybody. It's so hard, and it's not that we can't come up with a good name. It's just all the good names are taken. It, it sounds so hard to. You think there'd be an easier solution to finding a good name, but the the way trademark um, laws go is that trademarks work in categories. So a ski boot falls under the category of footwear, all footwear. So if a flip-flop company has trademarked a name, even though it's not used at all in the ski boot industry anyplace else, if there's a trademark in a flip-flop, a high heel, a bike shoe, a running shoe, ski boots fall under footwear. So we have to kind of respect all trademarks um, within footwear. And sometimes you're, you're green-lighted for the EU and the US, but it's a problem in Japan. So you can't, it just, it's like, that's the risk you need to take is like, you know, so, Finding a name is is a, such a nightmare. And when you do find a name that works, we're going to stick with it, you know, for sure, for a long time. <laughs> so in like the year 3086, it will be on like Hawks extended point, like 93.8. Yeah, V93 like or something, yeah. <laughs> but that's a great, like a great example, you know, like Hawks. Um, is a, is a name we launched in 2007, I think. And, you know, at the time, I don't, I don't think we thought it was going to be this mega franchise for us that, it, that it's come to be. And to stop calling our boots Hawks now is like Volkswagen, maybe not this, this extreme, but 
you can think about this, like the Volkswagen Golf has been around for a long time. If you don't think Golf is the best name for a car, that's one thing, but there's a certain value and just knowledge attached to what that means, you know, Golf from Volkswagen. And I think every brand wants to have that as their goal. You know, you look at the specialized stump jumper, you know, a mountain bike with the name for the last 30 years or Nike Air, you know, every brand in every category is trying to have these iconic products that just, they don't need to retell the marketing story every year over again. And there's a, a huge benefit to just sticking with a name as long as it's, it works in every um, market, for example, you know? So to, to, to find a name that you think is just awesome and this, the, the council of the 13 that you're going to come over and be a part of one day, um, <laughs> you're going to love this name and you're going to find out it means nipples in Russian or something, you know, and you just, oh, we can't do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For example, we have, we have a boot called the Hawks Magna and that sub name of Magna means wide fit for us. Um, and our Italian team was the first to say, well, it kind of sounds like uh, magna, like the, uh, the the slang for to eat. And they didn't want to do it because it sounded like the slang to like go get something to eat. You know, so there's, there's all these things that kind of crop into or, or creep in to the, the naming discussion that um, I was never aware of, obviously, as a English speaking American uh, coming over here thinking, oh, we're going to have this, the, the, the easiest time come up with cool names for boots, you know, <laughs> cakewalk. And it's, it's such a nightmare. <laughs> what about <laughs> maybe you should come out with the Hawks cakewalk? The CW, the not... Hawks CW. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. See, yeah. I'm good at this. <laughs> you guys, you guys are going to love having me over there. Yeah. Then, then you got to realize the, you know, our main market is a German speaking market. When you, <laughs> when you, when you combine the amount of skiers in Germany, Austria, and Switzerland, everything should be viewed through a German lens first. <laughs> okay. So this makes me, since, since my German is rather strangely specific to like academic philosophy <laughs> Hans Georg Gadamer he his like magnum opus is called Wahrheit und Methode and so we could have the Hawks Wahrheit und Methode which is actually kind of not the worst not the best but uh so I'll work on this um but yeah my my german like I I'd have trouble getting like off like finding a bus stop in Germany, but when we go to like important philosophical terms and conversations, I do better actually. Anyway, on that note, I think that is definitely our cue that it is time to end this conversation. Yeah, it'll get God. really weird after this. At this it's, point, it's it's it. That was the turn. Um, I apologize to everybody who has been waiting for their more specific answers, but you now have more time to prepare for part four. And only God knows at this point if this ends at part four. I have no clue now. Probably not at this rate. <laughs> um, anyway, Matt, as always, um, appreciate the time. And uh, we're learning a whole lot about ski boots these days. So appreciate it. 
It's been fun. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right, man. Till the next time. Cheers. That's it for this edition of Gear 30. Thanks to Matt once again for the conversation. And thanks to Tribe Alpha for sponsoring this episode. Go to tribealpha.com gear to see how they can help you grow your e-commerce business. And in the process, get a 10% discount off their standard pricing when you go to tribealpha.com gear. I also want to thank Luke Alley for producing this episode, and I want to thank you for listening. If you are enjoying these Gear 30 episodes, please spread the word to your gearhead friends. Please be safe out there, and we will talk to you again next week.